Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in 1993, the Joy Luck Club was a surprise hit. The poignant story featuring an all-Asian cast broke barriers at the box office. The next week I brought Rich to Mom's birthday dinner. Sort of a surprise present. I figured she was going to have to accept Rich, like it or not. Would the Joy Luck Club inspire more stories drawn from the Asian-American experience? No, as it turned out, it took 25 years before 2018's Crazy Rich Asians, another film featuring an all-Asian cast, became a breakout global hit. These people aren't just rich, okay? They're crazy rich. Look, there's new money all over Asia. We got the Beijing billionaires, the Taiwan tycoons, but the Young family, they're old money rich. They had money when they left China in the 1800s. These people are so posh and snobby, they're snobby. Crazy Rich Asians sparked the cultural movement, hashtag Asian August, throwing a spotlight on other productions featuring Asian stories and actors. Last year, Asian representation got its biggest boost since Crazy Rich Asians, when the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once reaped top box office receipts, as well as near-universal acclaim from critics and fans. No question, there has been an appreciable expansion of Asian-led projects at the movies, on TV, and streaming. During the next hour, we'll take a broad sample of the work featuring Asian actors and themes. Joining me, Jenny Korn, research affiliate and founder and coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Welcome back, Jenny. Thank you. Hey, y'all. And also with me, Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian-American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Welcome back, Elena. Thank you, Callie. Great to be back with you two. Oh, I'm delighted to have both of you and uh, can't wait to jump into this. So I should begin by saying this is a perfect time for this conversation. It's uh, be uh, between the start of Lunar New Year and the upcoming Academy Awards. And I, for one, am bleary-eyed from watching so much stuff, which is a good thing. Um, so I want to start with just a general question, general reaction from the two of you. We saw a lot of stuff. In general, what's your sense about the increased Asian representation in movies and on streaming? And then we'll get down to some specifics. I'll start with you, Elena. Uh, I, I want to say that in the in the wake, five years now, of Asian August 2018, I would describe this past year in the current scene as a literal joyride, a flood of crazy pleasure. Okay. All right. And for you, Jenny? So I like this year because we are not focused on only one overarching movie. We have several different movies 
that um, have different prominences. Uh, I also want to harken back to last year. Uh, my predictions that I made did happen. <laughs> <this year. laughs> okay, take credit. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, overall, I'm very pleased with the predicted focus on interracial relationships and also the visibility of Asian queer relationships. Absolutely true. Well, um, before the Oscars come many other awards, and one of them was um, the Golden Globes. And we saw Beef uh, just rack up award after award for Ali Wong um, and uh, Stephen Young, who are the uh, the leads in that uh, show, that series. It's a series on Netflix. And also lots of other folks associated with it. So let's start there. What about beef? I'm going to play a clip after you just give me your initial thoughts and then we'll dive in deeper. Yes, I loved beef. Um, I have to say I'm a little bit surprised um, that uh, beef may not just be what we saw in the movie, meaning beef is means that you have an argument, you have beef with somebody, you know, you have road rage. Um, Netflix has done something uh, funky. It's interesting. Beef is actually capitalized in all four letters. Like it's a, it seems as if it might be implying that beef is an acronym. And so, yes, and I thought that was very interesting. And I tried to find information on why that particular choice. Um, I did make up an acronym. I said, battles, everything, everywhere, fuming. Because if you watch this movie, you see that Road rage takes on such an immense um, uh, layer of consequences that it becomes battle off of the road um, into, oh my goodness, like, you know, spoiler alert, into deaths, into um, kidnapping, um, and then a, a kind of very beautiful ending, though. I thought the ending was very touching. Um, I think that the two characters realize that they've never been as candid as when they're about to die, um, having to lean upon each other, rely upon each other. And um, the very last clip where we see them in the bed together and um, Danny actually raises his arm to um, uh, hug Amy back is... Uh, just so moving to me. I thought that was a very, very beautiful way to end it. So Danny and Amy are the two lead characters uh, in a series of Netflix. It's called Beef because there's a beef between the two of them, which starts with what seems like a run-of-the-mill uh, road rage incident, and it escalates as Jenny has described. So I'm giving you that background, so I'm going to play this clip so you get a sense. Here's the two of them talking together. This thing has escalated at this point, and they have interacted with each other much more than anybody ever could have imagined after the initial incident. I have a very full life that I'd love to get back to. I'm going to find you and take what little you have. You're just a suburban housewife, and now you're stuck in a life you never wanted. You have this serene Zen Buddhist thing going on. All right, Elena, you weigh in on beef. Well, I want to say that I came into beef blind and late to the game. I read no reviews uh, before before the uh, the Golden Globes. I streamed all all um, all of the episodes, 
And I want to say, I think Beef deserves an award for burying whatever uh, whatever last memory of model minority representation existed in Hollywood <laughs> film, gone. I love seeing badly behaved Asians. I love the complexity of this story that takes place in Southern California. I love that we have a mix of catfishing, stalking, the Korean Christian church, Asian American gangsters, new age appropriation of Zen-like Asian culture. Very few white characters in the 10, in the 10 stories of the series. Uh, the ones we get are, are fabulous and memorable. And, and I think uh, Maria Bello deserves all of her nominations. But I thought this was, uh, just brilliant and I had no idea where the where the story arc was taking us. It was zigzagging every episode. Just brilliant. Well, I had avoided it because I knew that there was some level of violence and I'm a big old wuss, which will come up frequently in this conversation. Um, so I knew it had to be good I, I because Ali Wong is so talented and she was at the center of, you know, writing some of this and creating it and whatever. And of course, the director, brilliant as well. Um, I want to point out something that you didn't mention on your list of things that were raised, uh, Elena, and I don't think you did, Jenny, either. And that was a distinct class uh, difference here that was raised in the clip and also throughout uh, the series, which I thought um, was fabulous in that, as we have often discussed in these conversations, so often that model minority that's uh, you know on the up on the upswing, doing very well. And you don't often get a kind of class crash going on. No, I think you're absolutely right, Callie. What What is really brilliant about beef is that uh, it blows the lid off of uh, contained and predictable Asian, Asian-American storylines. I love that this this uh, this series maps out uh, from the most from the most marginal working class to the most elite upper class communities. Uh, within an Asian American diaspora, there are infinite storylines and, uh, and tales that can be told. But I thought it, it, it handled that just beautifully with the two main characters. I completely agree. Um, I think one of the uh, interesting um, clips is when they're ordering room service um, and they can order actually anything they want at any time. And uh, Mangosteen, which is, you know, associated with Asian uh, cultures and in, in eating it, becomes the center, um, just feeling like they can order it and it comes up and they get to eat it together. And it really speaks to the class uh, issues that you brought up, Callie, because um, Danny's family is very working class, whereas Amy's family um, is upper middle and uh, Amy's about to become a millionaire. Uh, with with the sale of her company to Jordan. Um, and so, you know, those those big class differences are depicted in a way that um, actually doesn't make us hate Amy because um, it's easy to see all of us as working class and then to hate the upper class. But Amy's got such brokenness around her um, that we can still appreciate why Amy is... Um, questioning whether or not she wants to continue this kind of lifestyle. And we definitely can side with Danny and his desire to try to get reunite his family um, and working so hard, always hustling. Danny is always hustling and he does really care about his family. So um, I, I think this story has so many different ways we could study it through a class lens, through a race lens, through family lens, through a religion lens. 
Um, I I think this show is is uh, worthy of all the awards, and I'm really glad it's landed on Netflix because Netflix is so accessible. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Jenny Korn, founder and coordinator for the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center, and Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. We're discussing the increased Asian representation in movies and TV. Well, uh, that's a that's a powerhouse um, series and one that I think a lot of people uh, should see. And just a little side note, little factoid: um, the lead character who plays the down and out Danny was also the lead character in Minari, the film, the little small film that got quite a bit of attention. Set in the South, totally different thing. And Ali Wong, if people don't know really is most known for her stand-up comedy, which is quite raunchy. So totally different. It just shows the skill level of, of, of both of these actors. Now, I want to pair that uh, series, Beef, with Warrior, which I I will confess, until Jenny put on the list, I'd never heard of. And I was when then I read the blurb about what it was about, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be watching a lot of this through my fingers because I know it's going to be some serious violence. But the thing that you said in in sending me a note about it, Jenny, was this is so good. Let me echo, this is so good. I was going to, same thing with Beef. I was going to watch two episodes so I could talk about it. I watched the whole thing. With Warrior, I said, I'm, I can't stand it. I, I'll, I'll lose my mind. It's so, so much going on and a lot of violence. I watched the whole first season hanging on by a thread and then went into the first episode of the second season because I couldn't stand it. And I had to say to myself out loud, now stop. You have to stop. <laughs> Whoa, is this something, Jenny, or not? Let's talk about, here's a short synopsis. Uh, this is in the set around the time of the uh, before the Chinese Exclusion Act, but imagine the tension and everything going around during that time. So everything was happening. They're bringing uh, lots of Chinese folks over, really with these smugglers and scammy people, to use as cheap labor. And they usually go into two tracks: either you know cheap cheap labor for the men and for the women into prostitution. Um, There are so many layers to the story, however. One of them is that as a result of the cheap labor, a lot of the Irish uh, folks who had been getting all these jobs get no jobs. So naturally, they're pretty upset about it. Um, And then there's politics on top of it and about five other themes running through it. But the point is, it's historically accurate and uh, drawn through these fictional characters so beautifully. The lead character is a guy who comes over looking for his sister, and he has all of these martial arts skills that people are familiar with now, but nobody had seen during that period of time, and that becomes uh, a center of this. And the story came from Bruce Lee. I love Warrior. It's um, So there's three seasons. However... It the uh, the internets, um, which never lie, say that um, if we can get Warrior to be popular on Netflix, then there could be a fourth season. And so I really want everyone who's listening to and people who've already seen the show on Max doesn't matter. Go to Netflix, turn on Warrior. Why you taking a shower? Why you sleeping? Let it run. Like we want to have the numbers go up. Um, as Callie mentioned, this story is full of excellently choreographed 
action. If you like action, you've got to watch this show. If you are interested in race relations, you've got to watch this show. Um, as Callie mentioned, we get to see how racism plays out against the Irish community, um, against the Black community, against Asian communities. We see intra-Asian fighting, fighting for power, um, fighting to uh, be able to be at the top. Um, we do see women Women are uh, portrayed as very central to the story. Uh, there's a very important queer relationship that arises in this show. Um, I, I just, I, I have gone back and I've watched this and I let it play. So I just think that um, we can save Warrior and have a fourth season if we all work together when it comes to Netflix next week. <laughs> Well, Elena, I'm going to play this clip and get you on the other side. Um, so here we go. You guys seem to have wandered off Longview territory. Just walk away. Well, you escalated that pretty fast. Usually there's a little more repartee. <laughs> uh, you know there's a door right there. <sighs> Shut up and help me out. All right, Elena. Jenny, that was the best. Uh, that was the best pitch for for watching Warrior as it moves to Netflix. So count me in. Uh, I I also came late late to the game with Warrior, and you know this is a, a Bruce Lee um, uh, conception. I've got to say this is the kung fu we all deserved from fifty years ago. Yes. Uh, so fantastic. Love that Shannon Lee is involved. Love that Justin Lin's got his hands on this amazing storytelling for all the intersections and all the complexities. I consider this the best Western on, on television and streaming right now. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Jenny Korn of Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center and Elena Kreef of Wellesley College. We're sampling movie and streaming projects that feature significant Asian representation. I would I would agree with that. Uh, the layeredness of it, the acting, the the production is out of this world. And I'm sure both of you can appreciate, but Elena, since you teach this, at the end of each episode is exactly what each filmmaker should do. You're literally going, what, what, what's going to happen? <laughs> Which is why you go to the next thing because you cannot get up. It is that, it's that tightly written. <laughs> and I put, wanted to pair it with Beef because I thought to myself, here's Beef. That's a modern contemporary story featuring, featuring Asian characters and uh, cultural touch points, and here is Warrior, set in a time where some people may think they know about, which is again around the uh, the time of the building to the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it has uh, some similar themes, but a lot of of cultural touch points in it and the historical foundation. But if you just wanted to watch it only for the action, that works too. So <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. All right, let's talk to, about uh, a film that the um, is up for a big award at the Oscars, Past Lives. Um, so, this is my kind of movie. I don't have to watch through my fingers. <laughs> it's a relationship. Um, so the the sum of it is that these uh, um, two characters, um, both of them are Korean. They know each other as children. They are fast friends, and then one of them moves away. The young woman's family moves away, and they she essentially has her formative years uh, that are left in America. He stays behind, and they don't talk for years and years and years, and then they are 
she makes a connection with him again and they start to talk and it results in an actual face-to-face meeting in her town because he comes to America. This is years later, decades have passed now. Um, and so the title, Past Lives, examines um, to some extent, well, what would have happened if I'd gone in this direction? And here's a clip from Past Lives. Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I should have mentioned the main character now who moved to America is now married. And so this is a conversation she's having with her husband about this young man that she, I mean, really, he was a kid when she knew him, is now coming to visit. And he's feeling a little bit uneasy about it, though he doesn't block it. He's just just wondering. Um, So, Jenny, your take on past lives. Um, so <laughs> my kind of movie, uh, we've been doing this reunion for, uh, annually for many years now is more action. So when I watched this, I was like, what is happening right now? But I will say, um, I had to watch it more than once. Um, and what I appreciate again here is that, uh, this movie is broadly, uh, autobiographical, um, Celine song wrote it. Um, and she does not again take kind of the an easy choice which would be turn the white guy turn the white husband uh into a villain that would be too easy and i do appreciate that celine song um chose not to do that i think that past lives is very i'm going to use past lives in uh future teaching because um to me it epitomizes a non-western epistemology how do we know what we know this is an example of an Asian um, social epistemology, meaning that uh, they bring in the concept of Inyan. Um, and Inyan is um, the idea of having a relationship that uh, repeats itself uh, over and over. Um, there's an Inyan with you and the person that you uh, fall in love with. And this movie does a good job of showing um, she has Inyan uh, with Haesung, and that Inyan will repeat itself in the future, but it doesn't have to be the overarching uh, reason for her to go back with him, spoiler alert, um, at the uh, end of the movie. It also means this is a time period that's over for her. So Haesung represents when she was young, uh, when she was living um, in Korea. And now she's in the United States and she's a different person. Uh, she can appreciate that. She can cry for it. She can yearn for it, but she's not leaving Arthur. She is not leaving Arthur. This is where she is now. I just want to say that I think Past Lives is the best independent film that came out this past year. Uh, it It's, um you know, it's not a big blockbuster. It's a quiet film uh, with beautiful, uh, beautiful characters and stories. Uh, and uh, and I think that's why it's done so well on a, a lot of the independent film festival circuit. It's been garnering so many awards. Here's something though that I, that I find a real conundrum and problematic about about this year's Oscars. Past Lives has been nominated for best film and best original screenplay. Uh, 
but yet Celine Song, like other female directors, not nominated for best director. Uh, you know, anyway, Greta Gerwig got shut out of, of Barbie, which I would say in many ways it was the best film of the past year. Um, I would say anything Greta Lee is in, whether it's a movie or a television series, I am in. She is my yes. favorite actress at this moment. I just I love her, uh, and she's gotten so many so much recognition, and she's and she's scooped up a lot of awards for uh, for her performance in past lives. Uh, but I just I find it really strange that you can honor a beautifully well a well written directed film, but you're not going to honor you know its creator or director. Exactly, and a lot of people are saying, "Well, it got Best Picture, so everybody be quiet." But that's not the point, as you've said, Elena. Go ahead, Jenny. And well, Past Lives did get snubbed, um, so it was nominated in five categories. At the Golden Globes for Best Foreign Language Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Drama Motion Picture, and Best Actress. Didn't win a single award. It did win Best Picture Award from the National Society of Film Critics, which is a good award, but it ain't televised. It ain't like the Golden Globes. You know what I mean? So I am. I don't know what the chances are of the Past Lives movie. So let me, let's take a pause right here and let me pull together that which we've talked about and just you all react to the representation that is in all of these films because what I'm taken with, and we'll see, we'll hear more as we go on, is just the wide variety with a very um, distinct cultural foundation, I find. What, what say you, Elena? <laughs> oh, I was just trying to make a mental list of all of the genres that all of the the films and new television series have crossed, you know, between rom-coms and what some have called raunch-coms, road movies, study films, um, uh, independent film, coming-of-age film. Uh, I am so thrilled to see the most diversity across genres of storytelling for Asian, Asian American stories, I think ever. And I would credit this with the crashing of the gate that was Crazy Rich Asian in 2018. And I think we're still riding the tailwind of everything everywhere all at once. I would draw our attention to, we have discussed how Asianness is central to the story, meaning that there's no way that um, these storylines could have done uh, could could be executed without having Asian actors uh, performing these storylines. Um, that's in contrast to what I would say are Asian ancillary roles, meaning like we see Asians, which is great, that's representation, we see Asians on the big screen and the little screen, but they don't reference their race in a way that makes it significant or really truly represent representative. Um, so the three we talked about are very much Asian-centered. Uh, what is Asian ancillary? And here I would, <laughs> um, I'm going to defer to, to Kay, let us know which movie, but I would give an example here of Loki. Yes, yes. Okay, let's just talk about Loki right now. I mean, I I, I could barely, I tried to make it through uh, and I thought, I want to support Kiwi Kwan. I'm glad he has a chick. And obviously this is popular because uh, it's gone into season two. It's on Disney Plus um, and it's in the Marvel Universe. Loki refers to the god of mischief. People who follow all the Marvel characters will recognize him for that. And he's landed in this other place because of a time 
variants. It's a whole thing, y'all. I'm going to play a little clip. Uh, and this one uh, features Kiway Kwan, just so we can, you know, get to the point of this discussion. So here's a clip from Loki featuring Kiway Kwan. Wow. Great to see you again. Good to see you, too. Yeah, I... Loki, I want to introduce you to... I'm Ouroboros. Nice to meet you, Loki. Ouroboros. Ouroboros. But he calls me OB. So I think this is an example of... We have now gotten to the point, which is a good point, where you're, it's not so precious and people are not dancing around uh, the centering of race and culture in these films that you can make a bad one. So, <laughs> what, say, what say you, Jenny? <laughs> well, like you, so I love the Marvel movies, but dadgummit, I did not like Loki. Um, so like you, I was not loving uh, this particular series. Um and I do think it's interesting on one level, again, I think this is a very good example of um, putting an Asian into the show where race is just completely ancillary. Like You could also take them out and put somebody else in there. I will say though, since we did put um, Kei Kwan there, then we do see an Asian uh, performer. I wonder if we're going back to the model minority myth here, because this role is he's the tech guy. He's the tinkerer. He's the engineer. And what's even worse is this: his role is actually one of perpetuity neoliberal productivity. He can never stop. He never sleeps. All he does is he keeps, you know, messing around with time uh, devices. And he says that his character just says, I never sleep. What? No, no, honey, no. So, like, this is the wrong message to send about, you know, neoliberal work and to send about um, putting Asian again in a model minority myth way. So uh, it's two levels. Race is ancillary, yet if you're going to put an Asian embodiment there, then what is the message of why this particular occupation for him? Can I, can I jump in here? I want to say, Kelly, please don't feel too sorry for for, for Kate. Because they over at Disney's American Born Chinese, he's got a great gig going yeah. on in a, yeah. in a meta series within a series. Okay. And he's also back on the team with uh, his co-star Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, even though they don't they don't they're not together in that series. But but you know, he's he's been he has a he's got a really rich afterlife from uh, <laughs> from everywhere, 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 everywhere all at once. Oh, well, I'm happy for him. Listen, I'm all about people getting their rent check. I don't have a problem with it. I just think we just need to acknowledge that it is not past lives. <laughs> you know, that, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, coming up, last year, the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once dominated the Academy Awards, winning seven Oscars, three of four top acting awards and best picture. The film showcased the talents of the mostly Asian cast, capturing both critical and fan acclaim. Is the film's global success evidence that Asian representation on the big screen and streaming has significantly increased for good? That's next on this special one-hour discussion about Asian representation in the movies. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're taking the full hour to talk about the increased representation of Asian actors and Asian culturally themed stories at the movies and streaming. In the six years since Crazy Rich Asians' blockbuster success, Asian representation has seen the biggest jump of any other marginalized group. The University of Southern California's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative samples the visibility of underrepresented groups in the top 100 highest-grossing movies. Last year, the report revealed that Asians represented a little over 15 percent in 2022's top movies, up from the 3.4 percent before the success of Crazy Rich Asians. Joining me to continue our conversation about this increased representation, Jenny Korn, research affiliate and founder and coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. And Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Well, I want to jump back in um, with something completely different from uh, what we've talked about so far. And that actually is the the underpinning of this conversation. There's such a rich menu. Uh, shortcomings. So a couple of things about shortcomings. Um, I would consider this a kind of twisted rom-com. <laughs> um, it's not, I mean, it's not scary because I'm. I, I have a problem with scary. It's wonderful. This is Randall Park's directorial debut. People may remember him from Fresh Off the Boat. He was uh, the father in that. And you've seen, if you see his face, you've seen him in a million places. He's been around a long time. And this is a giant leap for him to direct this movie. Um, The other thing to know about this movie is that the lead character is unlikable, <laughs> which which Randall says, uh, and he wanted to do that for real. It's set in contemporary times. The essence of the story is a relationship between uh, two people who clearly have issues, mainly because of the unlikable character who's the guy. And the final thing I will say before I play this little this little clip, which will make sense after I say this, is I laughed out loud because the very first scene in the movie is a spoof of Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> uh, so it's just so hilarious. I just said, oh, my God, he's making a spoof of Crazy Rich Asians. All right, so here's a clip from Shortcomings. So what did you think? Oh, Miss Higashi, after some careful consideration of the film, I regret to inform you that... He no likey. Okay. Okay, I know, I know. But, you know, as a community, we've waited a long time to see ourselves reflected in, in a... a... garish, mainstream rom-com that glorifies a capitalistic fantasy of vindication through wealth and materialism. Okay! I guess I thought you might be able to see, like, beyond your own snobby tastes. Have we just met? Ha! All right. Elena, shortcomings, your take. <laughs> I love the the opening uh, parody of Crazy Rich Asians. I thought that was that was fabulous. And I thought, ah, oh, we're off to a good start here. Uh, I think because Justin Min, who plays Ben, the central hero or anti-hero of this film, he's so unlikable as that brooding failed film student from Berkeley who has um a fetish for for white girls that they sort of they they do play around, they 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 deal with that. But for me, the the pleasure in this film is Sherry Cola as his really loud, 
uh, queer best friend. And when Sherry goes to New York and pairs up with crazy rich Asians veteran, Sonoya Mizuno, who plays uh, a queer, uh, I think, NYU prof, that's the storyline I, I want to follow. And I, I think those two deserve their own story. But um, yeah, I just I found it painful to follow to follow the exploits of of, the, of Ben throughout the this film. Um, I, I will tell you, Jenny, I'm screaming at the screen, going, "Are you for real?" <laughs> Through most of it, anyway. <laughs> your take? Um, ben is a bad, bad, bad Asian. Like he bad. He's just not in a good way. The bad, like bad, bad Asian. Um, <laughs> and um. I think that the title is perfect. I mean, the title is Shortcomings and all of us have shortcomings. Um, you know, this movie is actually based on a graphic novel called Shortcomings um, that takes up Asian American identity issues. Um, and so I'm happy that this uh, has become a movie. Um, it's uh, the graphic novel version is almost 20 years old. Um, I feel bad for Ben. Um, I don't hate him. And again, I think that's a um, a strength. I like it when I'm not allowed to find um, a very big uh, supervillain. Um, I like it when we have to uh, consider these characters as, as reflecting some mirror of truth. And here, Ben's mind, bless his heart, is colonized. His mind is super colonized to respect white women more than Asian women. Um, there's a scene where um, he and his girlfriend, uh, Miko, are fighting. He calls her crazy. There's another scene, like I think in the movies, like within 24 hours, um, he has also another argument with the, with the white girl named Autumn. He calls her insane. But when Miko tries to like fight back and, you know, stand up for herself, Ben just dismisses her. When Autumn, uh, fights back with that wasn't very nice Ben immediately apologized to her uh, which shows uh, an internalized racism um, he goes on and he says uh, when an Asian guy is with a white girl folk think he must be cool and she is evolved um, and so that's that is unfortunate in the sense that he doesn't unpack that sentence he's only saying to himself I gotta get a white girl if I get a white girl then um, I'm cool I've reached the epitome, um, you know, of the romantic uh, hierarchy. But he doesn't realize that that's also uh, racist um, and it's built on um, white supremacy that depicts Asian women as objects and Asian men as emasculated. Um, why is it that a white woman would find an Asian man attractive? He wants to be that quote unquote exception. But that is just as racist as the other direction where white men are accused of fetishism for going after Asian women. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a very kind of academic analytical way to look at the movie. But this movie does a good job of bringing up the issue and then making the viewers feel uncomfortable. I also like Shortcomings because um, arguably, unlike the other movies, this is based for an Asian Asian American audience. This is not This is not for... Um, a white audience. And that again comes from the graphic novel. It's rooted in an Asian um, readership. And so I think it's great that, you know, Callie, Callie's like, I got this. I already know that this is Crazy Rich Asians at the beginning. The, uh, you know, it shows an insider knowledge um, that means that, that it does speak to a larger audience, um, but they're, they're not stopping to explain um, 
why is it that Asian white relationships are so fraught? Um, and I will criticize a little bit. This movie has no black people at all in it and it's set in San Francisco. Um, don't understand that. Um, and Pilar is the only uh, other person of color that's not Asian. Uh, she's, she's Latina and she makes an appearance at the very end, but doesn't have a speaking part. That's a, yes. Both points are really well taken um, because, and I just want to go back to your saying, this is built for an Asian audience because I immediately locked on to that whole discussion about internalized racism and how it played out here in a rom comian setting, which of course makes it easier for some people to hear. I also want to point out, Elena, because I'm bringing you into this conversation, speaking of making it for that audience, when Ben goes to the Asian American film, the alleged Asian American Film Institute, where he's looking for her, his girlfriend, what's on the wall? Did you notice? On the wall is a poster of Lucky Grandma. I screamed out loud because I learned about Lucky Grandma from YouTube and that's a wonderful film. <laughs> and it's huge on the wall. So you go back and look at that scene. It takes up the whole wall so you can't miss it. And I just loved it. <laughs> Good spot, Kelly. <laughs> yes. All right, Elena, weigh in. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you know, I hope that Randall Parks will have have a another shot in the director's chair. I think I think Shortcomings is really watchable. It's a very short film as well. It's like not almost barely an hour and a half. Uh, but I think you know this is not bad. Uh, I wouldn't put him in the category this year as one of the strongest strongest directors of the the Asian Asian American films that we've been talking about. But it's a it's a great first film. And again, I thought that the women in the film just eclipse Justin Min's uh, performances. Sad sack Ben. Yes. All right. Well, we got to get to something that is fabulously done. I never would have watched this again because I'm afraid of violence. But what a story. This is a series called The Brother Son. So the short summary is one family divided a strategic move years ago when uh, both sons were younger. The older son stays with the father in um, Asia uh, because the father is head of a very dangerous gang. This is set in contemporary times, and he wants to train the son to actually be his assassin. But the mother takes the youngest son um, away to live in Los Angeles um, because she doesn't want him to be part of that. So the youngest son grows up in L.A. having no clue who mom is, who the family was, none of that. They live a very low-key life. She's a nurse, allegedly. And he's just a kid going to medical school uh, until their worlds clash because dad gets shot and goes into a coma. So um, at, before he goes completely out, he sends the assassin son to go to L.A. to protect mom and the other son. And there, all kinds of stuff ensues because that poor kid that had no idea and then he discovers his mom is really quite skilled in the in the in the land of the mob scene and the and he knows nothing of this brother who's an assassin and he's trying to build a relationship with him so here is a clip family is under attack some new gang wants to take our place for my brother to step up. I don't want to be a gangster. What if I just want to do what I want? We have a word for them, Taiwan. American. So there we have it. Jenny, the brother's son, your take. Yes, we're back now to the genre that I prefer. Um, 
Um, yeah, I absolutely loved uh, Brother Son. Uh, Michelle Yeoh's in it. I mean, that's. I mean, we just stop right there. And right. <laughs> that's enough yeah, exactly. for everyone to watch this. Um, she is uh, spectacular per usual. Um, I think the movie is uh, got excellent, once again, choreographed action. Also, though, very funny. Like really, really, really funny. Um, I will say this is a spoiler in case folk haven't uh, watched it yet. Um, this is a movie that teaches you how to feature John Cho without mm. featuring John Cho. Oh, hilarious! Yeah, <laughs> so funny, so funny. Um, and also, I will never look at a churro the same way again ever. <laughs> Yes, I should mention that the assassin's son is really a baker. Very good one. He likes to watch the British baking show. Uh, Elena, what do you say? I just want to say with all the films this year, I love that all the storylines may take us from the U.S. to Taiwan, to China, to Korea, to Calabasas, to San Gabriel. Uh, I just love the geographic stretch and reach um, of, of this year's uh, 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 just rich, rich, rich um, uh, film text. Uh, Brother Son, I want to make a suggestion. I think it should be retitled for the next season as Mother Son. Because <laughs> is the greatest pleasure. She is a type of lethal tiger mom I want to get behind. Yeah, she is it's what a what a beautiful show and mixing of comedy with uh gangster violence. Uh yeah, I just I love this. This was one of the, the greatest uh, surprises and pleasures for me this year. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Jenny Korn, founder and coordinator for the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center, and Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. We're discussing Asian representation in the movies and streaming ahead of the upcoming Oscar Awards. Yes, it has not been uh, re-upped for the second season, but people are hoping that it will be. And it left a little at the end to go to a second season, so we shall see. All right, let's move on to Joyride. This is my kind of movie. Uh, <laughs> Joyride, uh, all the trailers, I was so excited because it's a, it's a buddy women's movie. It seemed to be a little bit like Girls Trip. People may remember that film that featured all black actresses going on a trip together. Um, there was some pretense of why they were going on the trip. Same thing here. Um, the main character ended up, has a pretense for why she has to go on this trip uh, to China and invites everybody else and all kinds of stuff uh, ensues. So first, let's take a listen to a clip from Joyride, and then we can talk about it on the other side. Shot. Oh, come on, you are the big shot. You big shot lawyer. Best friends reunited. Deep in the night, how I wonder. Please make him real, how I'll pray. Woo! I will say, I, I had uh, looked so forward to it. Uh, it wasn't as tightly crafted as I'd hoped it would be. So I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. And I wanted to love it. Um, what say you, Jenny? I loved how raunchy it was, but um, I am surprised uh, because, uh, you know, Crazy Rich Asians um, and Everything Everywhere were also comedies. This is also a comedy, but this is not going to, this, this, you know, I've been trying to push for sequels. This ain't going to have a sequel. Um, 
It, and I'll tell you why, because uh, it cost $32 million to make. It only made half of that. Um, the audience is not not wanting to see millennial Asian women be this raunchy. Um, the The original working title for this movie was not Joyride. It was actually, and I won't cuss here, it was Joy, something that rhymes with luck, Club. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, interesting. They, were, they okay. wanted to yeah. express the raunchiness from the get-go, like from the title. Um, but they, you know, of course, they had to go back, move back a little bit. Um, I will say uh, this movie has the greatest um, amount of queer visibility for Asians. Um, I'll also say this movie, of all the movies that we're discussing today, does the most explicit job of declaring authenticity um for asians uh intra-asian across ethnicities and then also uh chinese chinese as in authentically chinese um so for people who are listening and if you want to watch a movie that kind of really plays with um expectations of what it's like to be culturally specifically chinese this is the movie to watch um because there are a lot of taken for granted um uh expectations about what it is to be Chinese. Um, and I'll give you uh, an example. Uh, one of the examples they say is, um, you know, being so hot and you have sweat underneath your breasts and you wipe it and then you have someone sniff it. Like that to me, like it made me laugh. Um, another example is the long hair growing out of a mole, but don't pluck it because it's bad luck. Um, that in particular is one that my grandma, maybe think of my grandma immediately, like, um, and she's not Chinese, she's Thai. Um, but you know, it's these, it's these things that they say so that the movie educates us on, um, what does it mean to be, uh, supposedly Asian or supposedly Chinese, Chinese, even though again, uh, these expectations go across ethnicities. Um, the last thing I'll say is, uh, this movie does show a beautiful, uh, Asian black relationship in it. Um, I say beautiful because, uh, if you watch this movie, they're the only couple to make out and, uh, the man does not get injured. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. <laughs> Elena. <laughs> you know, this is Adele Lim's film. And Adele Lim is, she's the, the talent behind Crazy Rich Asians. You know, she was one of the screenwriters. She was the one who was brought in to rewrite the last third of that film. She's the one who crafted that genius Mahjong scene at the end. And she's the one also who was signed up to write the sequel for Crazy Rich Asians. And she left because of the huge discrepancy between uh, the pay that she would receive and the pay that was going to her her male uh, co-writer. Um, so I think in some ways the fact that she was able to take on Joyride um, is sort of a, not a consolation prize, but is a credit to her her great talent. I love watching this film. And for me, I thought it was um, a wild and very raunchy roller coaster ride in the same way that films like Hangover and Bridesmaid and Girl also operate. Um, I, I I just loved it. I also want to say that, Callie, the clip that you opened with from the, the childhood playground scene at the beginning, where uh, one of one of the little girls punches out the white uh, the white boy who's a bully, that is total homage to a 1990s uh, animated short series by Leela Lee called Angry Little Asian Girl. Uh, Angry Little Asian Girl was always my favorite uh, a uh, very um, uh, small budget animated series that was well known on the Asian American film uh, film festival circuit, didn't um, and really didn't go anywhere. But 
uh, this uh, Joyride takes the premise from angry little Asian girls, you know, who've now grown up into these very sassy uh, 20-something women. But I, I love this film. Uh, I don't need a sequel, but I'd love to see all the, the talent of, you know, Ashley Park and Shelley Cola and Sabrina Wu and the great Stephanie Hsu come back together again. Yeah, I love that, their was, that was the cast is really great. I love them so much. It was really wonderful. Uh, just, just a. I got a. You know, I'm Thai. I got a rep for the Thai folk. Um, this movie was written by a Thai person. Thank you very much. I just wanted to give a, give a shout out to Cherry, um, and she also uh, went to Harvard, and she also wrote for Family Guy. So good job, sister. Oh, good. <laughs> all right, now we have a few minutes for you all to, as usual, uh, bring up to me something I don't know about or should pay attention to, or um, any other issue you have with something that's out there now that you want you'd like to raise who'd like to go first well no I just uh just a couple things as I was watching films uh, and television series in this past year I want to say that I was really moved by the fact that there are four Asian Asian American women directors uh Adele Lim Joyride Celine Song Past Lives Jessica Yu Quiz Lady and Lulu Wang for the uh, the currently streaming series Expats, which is a fabulous series. Uh, Alice Wu and Chloe Zhao, I think we've discussed those directors in, in past years. But the fact that there are four Asian women directors whose work has been showcased this year, I, I thought was tremendous. I also want to say in preparation for our gathering, I hate watched all 10 episodes of Squid Game Challenge. <laughs> and I, I loved I love the original Squid Game. Squid Game Challenge, uh, not so much. But the winner, this is a spoiler alert, the winner of Squid Game Challenge, uh, Mai Whelan, who is a Vietnamese immigrant and grandma and Navy vet, I loved her. Yes. And I thought the show really cast her in a way that really tried their best to morph her into that inscrutable Asian Oriental who is untrustworthy. But I love that she outplayed everyone in that show. All right, Jenny. I will pick up on the Squid Game Challenge. I enjoyed it. Let me also say that um, Squid Game Challenge made history because the largest amount of money ever for both a reality competition show and a game show was $4.56 million. Um, there will there is a sequel. They're, they're already doing season two, um, both of the original Squid Game uh, and well as well as the challenge, the reality TV show. So we'll have both of those to discuss. Um, I also think that we'll, everybody again, just a reminder, activism, um, let's get the fourth season of Warriors but also the second season of Brother's Son. So I think they're both on Netflix. I think both will come back. Let's, let's hope. We'll discuss that next year. I also think Shogun, which is going to be on Hulu uh, FX. It starts at the end of this month, February 24th. It has Hiroyuki Sanada in it, whom I love. Um, I think we'll be discussing that as well. Another um, historically contextualized warrior show uh, similar to Warriors. Um, it's going to be, again, called Shogun. Um, I think we'll be watching that. I think A24, I, at this point, I'll watch anything they, they produce at this point because they are behind Minari, The Farewell, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Past Lives. So A24, come on, anything you put. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I am very curious more about how Asian ancillary roles might show up versus Asian central roles. 
I really am happy that we're leaning into such Asian queer visibility. Next year, I'd love to talk about Sort Of. I mentioned it last year. Um, the third season of Sort Of is on right now on Max. Um, and so hopefully next year, that might be a show uh, that we also discuss. Um, and also many, many more Asian-centered roles that um, talk about more queerness. I think that's going to be that's going to be predicted as well as more Korean focused concepts and stories. Yo, Korea, they are really taking over the storytelling. Great job. Great job. And, and don't forget that. Oh, don't forget Joy Luck Club, the sequel. Has Listen, we talked about that last year. I'm still to... waiting for an update, but the exactly. cast said they're ready to come back. All yes. right. Well, yes. that I would definitely be, you know, popcorn ready for. Um, I just want to emphasize expats. I did watch two episodes that it's quite good and is set in Asia and the production is so rich. A lot of people have talked about Nicole Kidman's role in it. In fact, she's quite good, but there's a lot of stuff going on there. I, I don't have the bandwidth to continue to watch it, but I think it's going to be one where we'll be hearing about uh again at some point. And again, to uh, emphasize A24, it's a very independent production company by these mostly guys, I think, who came together to do this and they do what they want and they won't discuss how they do it. So it's quite the mystery, but, you know, we're liking the product and uh, they can afford to take risks, I guess, because um, they've certainly had huge payback uh, both from a commercial standpoint and a creative standpoint. So that's what I would say. And um, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. And I think there's so much richness out here. And hey, we'll see what happens with past lives at the Oscars, right? All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. Always a rich discussion. And um, I just loved it. Thank you. I love our reunion too. I love um, getting to re-experience all these Asian forward movies and shows with the both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, Callie. It was a pleasure as always. Jenny Korn is a research affiliate and founder and coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. And Elena Kreef is a professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College who specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Tu Lee. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.